He had been working on working through the book of First Timothy, and we'll finish that out and do First and Second Timothy over the next few weeks. And today we're in First Timothy three. We'll look at here in a few minutes, but we're looking at this topic of letters to the bride. And today we're looking at good wisdom. And uh, as we think about this good wisdom, it's good wisdom for the church because the church is the bride of Christ. As we've said before, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy to the church at Ephesus as he's pastoring there at Ephesus. Timothy is there at at Ephesus. And so the Lord then who inspires the the words of Paul is is writing this for Timothy for the church. So there's the letters from the Lord to the church, his bride. As we've said before, the background is that the Ephesus is a very uh, idolatrous city. Uh, There's a lot of pagan culture that's going on there in the city. Uh, It's a very difficult place, very wicked place, but also there's some issues that are going on inside the church there at Ephesus as well. There's some issues with false doctrines, false teachings that have been uh, brought out, and uh, Paul knows about that, and he's getting Timothy to address some of those. And so we find here today this good wisdom for the church. So we think about the church. What is the church. Well, you know, uh, we th- we, when we hear that, we, we talk about the church in generic terms, uh, oftentimes we have this idea. I know as a child, when I would think about what is a church, somebody would ask me, hey, hey Joey, what, what's a church? I would have said, well, the church is that building up there on Prospect Road. You know, that's, we've got this great big large sanctuary. Uh, and as a kid, I remember that uh, you know, his mom took me to church uh, every, just about every Sunday. Uh, I would lay in the pew next to her uh, while the preacher was preaching. And uh, I would uh, look up to that high vaulted ceiling who had those wood beams. And I remember sticking my finger up and counting every one of those wood beams as a boy. You know, as I thought about the church, it was where if I misbehaved, I knew that I was going to get a spanking. And by the way, you'd be happy to know that I did get quite a few of those. But no, the church is not the building, the church is not the wood beams or the brick and the mortar, but the church is the people. The church is the people of faith, the children of God, disciples of Jesus Christ. And so Paul turns his attention to the structure of the church, the makeup of the church. And maybe he's doing that here in chapter 3 because of the, some of the people were, that were leaders were causing some issues. Or maybe it's because uh, uh, they were just the issues at all that, as the Lord just dealing with him to, to bring this forward for him to put now at this point in the, in the uh, letter. But we find here that we find... How should the church be organized in chapter 3, as well as why do we exist as a church? And so we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3, just all this chapter, which is only 16 verses. So in honor and reverence to the Word of God, if you'd stand as I read this passage of Scripture for us today. 1 Timothy 3. Paul writes, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is a, holy, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. 
Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, but let these also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children their houses well. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus." These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Let's pray together. Father... We thank you for the reading of your word. We pray that you would have your way in our hearts and our lives now. We pray, Lord, that you would use me simply as your instrument, a vessel. Lord, I pray that you would guide and direct what is said and how it is to go to the hearts and the lives of people. Lord, may you direct that may, as you have given the message, as it comes from your word, by your spirit. I pray that you would speak to each of us to understand how we are to be as the church. Lord, may we walk away from here today challenged by you, convicted by you, but also comforted, Lord, and called out to be the people of God you've called us to be as your bride, the church. And so, Lord, I pray, that especially if there are those here today that don't know Jesus, that this would be the hour of salvation, that your spirit would move and draw and call people to yourself. But also, Father, for those of us who do know you, may it be a time, Lord, where we'll be refreshed in our souls and walk away again today more in love with you than we came in. Lord, I pray now that may the words of my mouth, meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as you see the outline for today's message in your bulletin, we're going to follow along there. And we see two main points, two main thrusts here in the passage of Scripture. And we see, first off, we find in verses, uh, all of verses 1 through 13, the requirements of pastors and deacons. Now, again, Paul had just finished writing to the church, as we talked about last week. If you recall, he talked to the men. He talked to the women about their proper posture, pointing to the different roles of men and women. And so now he turns his attention to the organization or the leadership structure of the church. And he says that this is important, as he says, this is a faithful saying here. This is an important thing that he's about to say uh, to Timothy for the church. Because we know, as it has been said before, that as leaders go, so goes the church. Amen? Y'all awake this morning? I'm just making sure, all right? As leaders go, so goes the church. And Paul talks about here two different kinds of leaders. He talks about the pastor or the bishop or the elder overseer, and he talks about the deacons. It's been said that the pastors are servant leaders... Where the deacons are lead servants. I like that. The pastors are servant leaders. The deacons are lead servants. But first he speaks about pastors. And so we're going to pick up here in verse 1. And he tells us here that this is a faithful saying. That if a man desires the position of a bishop. He desires a good work. The word there bishop means an overseer. That's literally what that word means. An overseer. Well what does he oversee? Well he is to oversee the flock. The bishop the pastor, interchangeably throughout the other, script, the other scriptures, we see pastor, overseer, bishop, elder. 
the, the pastor watches over the flock. So I'm going to say, even though the scripture here has the word bishop, we know that it means pastor. So that's the word that I'm going to use today because that's the word that we use here at Mount Pleasant. So we, the pastor is to watch over the flock. As Paul is speaking to the, the elders in Ephesus, as we read in the book of Acts, Acts 20, 28, he says to the Ephesian elders there, he says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Again, he's talking to the elders or the, or the pastors, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so this bishop or the overseer, the pastor, is to shepherd the flock. And as the pastor shepherds the flock, that means that he is to feed the flock. He is to lead the flock, and he is to protect the flock. Now, as pastors, some churches just have one pastor. There are other churches like ours that have multiple pastors, and that's great. Uh, but we find that these, these are the responsibilities of all the pastors to feed, to lead, to protect. And so he says here in, in verse 1 that, that if, a, if a man desires the position of bishop, he desires a good work. And that desire is to, to have an aspiration to become a to be, a, to be a bishop, to be a pastor, is to be worthy of a noble position. It's not seeking ambitiously this position to seek gain, uh, to gain a power, prestige, or, or a popularity. No, it is, it's a noble position. That's what he's saying. It's a good work. It's a noble work. It's an honorable work to be an overseer of the flock. And so, as we think about how Paul's main thrust, his main thinking as, as he has been going through this letter to Timothy, it, was for the, it is for the church to be effective to advance the gospel. And so as we come to these requirements of the pastors and the deacons, we need to remember that that's what Paul is thinking, that the church, in order for it to be effective to advance the gospel, then the leaders of the church must meet certain requirements. They must meet certain standards to be effective in the community as the church so that the gospel can be advanced in Ephesus and in Colonial Heights. Amen? That's what he's saying. All right, so let's look then at the outline. And the first thing, the first two, you see the letter M there, those are going to be with the pastors, the letter E with deacons. And the first thing that we see about pastors is that they are to be models. Now, not the kind that walk down runways, all right? But they're to be models of men of faith. They're to model men of faith. And these men, these pastors, are to illustrate to the church what it looks like to live a godly life. The pastors are to be models of faith that they're looking like what it is to be men of faith. And so we have a, he has a list here, and we're just going to touch this list here as we move along and see what it is to model that, to look like, uh, to live a godly life. And the first thing we see here in verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, and able to teach. Well, let's look at a few of those. The pastor is to be blameless, meaning he's to be above reproach, meaning literally that means that no criticism sticks to him. The pastor is to be blameless. He is to be faithful. He is to be, that says, the husband of one wife. Now, it's no, it's no doubt probably that uh, Paul put that for one of the first things because that is an area of failure in a lot of pastors' lives. And indeed, David, King David, failed here uh, in this area. 
And so it's close to the top, and we find that it means that they're to keep and maintain moral and sexual purity. They're to be faithful to their wives. A pastor is to be loving toward his wife and to be faithful to his wife in all things. I, I re- was reading an illustration this week of, of, from, about Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill was once a, attended a formal banquet in London where the dignitaries there were asked the question th- this way. They, they asked him, uh, and all the dignitaries, if you could not be who you are, who would you most like to be? Well, when it came Churchill's time and it came around the table, uh, he was seated next to his beloved wife, Clemmy. He rose and he said, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be. And then he reached over and grabbed the hand of his wife and he said, Lady Churchill's second husband. Man, that's pretty good. Amen. Man, now that, that is, he got some points for that one with his wife, I'm sure. No doubt. That's a one-woman man. I love what Adrian Rogers said one time when he was talking about his beloved wife. He said, yes, I love my wife, and I've told her that if she ever leaves, I'm going with her. Amen? That's a one-woman man. Amen? So that's what a pastor is supposed to be, a one-woman man, faithful to their wife. Now, also, it tells us here, it needs to be a model of what it is to live a godly life, faithful to their wives. Temperate also is the next word there, temperate. That means having sensible judgment, uh, well-balanced in his judgment, because there'll be many decisions that a pastor will need to make, and so he needs to be, uh, uh, have sensible judgment, well-balanced in and uh, weighing all things out and making those decisions. The next word is sober-minded. That means to take his responsibility seriously. It doesn't mean he can't laugh and have fun. Praise God for that. Amen. Uh, but it means that he has to take his responsibility very seriously, that this is a responsibility that God has laid upon him uh, to lead the church and to, and to bring forth the word. Also, it tells us here that he is to have good behavior, and that means good behavior. He's supposed to be- behave well. Uh, it tells us that he's to be hospitable, and that literally means loving the stranger. He's to be a man who loves the strangers, who's willing to open up his home to people and to be hospitable to folks. You know, as I was going through this list and looking at what each word really meant in the background and the Greek basis from it uh, this week, I couldn't help but to think about as it came to literally mean loving the stranger and opening up your home about my pastor. I surrendered to preach when I was 15 years old. I was just a young man in high school. But my pastor, I went to my pastor. He was the first one that I told that I felt like God was calling me to the ministry. And he uh, wrapped his arm around me and became a mentor to me as I was coming up through. Uh, but uh, because I was such a, just a sponge of what it meant to be a pastor, I would go to his house every week, sometimes two or three times a week, and just to talk to him and sit down in his living room and just to have conversations about the Bible, have conversations about what it is to pastor, what it is to, to, to what does this look like? And I'm so thankful that not once did he say, Joy, you know what? You need to just go on home. He, he always opened his home to me and let me come in and was very hospitable. To me, that's a pastor to have a heart such as that. He's a model of godly life. Then verse 3, it tells us he's not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Uh, and let's look at those. Not given to wine. Not given to wine. So the pastor, this literally means one, one who does not sit long with the cup. That's what that literally means. 
It does not sit long with a cup. In other words, the pastor must not have a reputation as a drinker. Now, there are lots of, uh, lots of varying opinions about alcohol, especially in this culture, and I certainly have mine as well, and that's for a different day. Uh, but for here, we see that we are to be different as pastors from the rest of the world. We are to be different from the rest of the world, and as, as it comes to wine, we certainly do not want to be an excuse for a weaker brother to stumble. And so we need to make sure that we're away from wine, not sitting next to the cup, basically. So models of a godly life. It also says not violent. That means this pastor is a person who is not apt when there is a disagreement. A violent person is apt to clench the fist. And so this, this means that he is not apt to clench his fist. He's not going to have a fist fight with people. That's what violent means. He's not that kind of a person. He's not greedy for money, which is out for more and more. He's rather gentle, meaning he's not a dictator. He is not quarrelsome. That means peaceable. He's not covetous, meaning it doesn't mean just coveting money. It also means coveting popularity and coveting larger ministries. I couldn't help but to remember also young in my ministry. I'd been a pastor for probably about six or seven years. I went to one of the conventions and found myself in a group of pastors and was sickened by some of the conversations that I was hearing some of them say about how they wanted to move from this church because that church had more money. Well, I want to move from this church because that church has more people. And I thought, this is just not right. As pastors, we should not be having these kinds of conversations. So we need to make sure that pastors are not coveting, not just money, but also popularity or larger ministries. So not covetous. Verses 4 and 5 then says, One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So we've seen that he is to be faithful to his wife and family. But here also we see that the pastor must be faithful in his family. In other words, he must lead his home well. Now, that doesn't mean that his children are always going to be perfect. I can assure you that pastor's kids are not always perfect. But what it does mean is that the pastor is going to lead his family and love his family and that he will pastor his family first. Because that's the pastor's main responsibility. Now, I know this comes as a shock. But the pastor's main responsibility is not to the church, but to his family. Amen? It's been said before, the pastor may have another church, but he'll never have another family. And that's his greatest responsibility. So that is the pastor of the family, leading his family well. And also that he is the same at home as he is in the ministry at the church as well. Verse 7 tells us here, as we think about the pastor being a model of godly life, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So in other words, he's, he's to have a good testimony, he's to have a good reputation in the community, and he's supposed to have that. Why do you think Paul would even say he needs to have a good testimony among those who are outside? Because it's for the sake of the gospel. He wants the gospel to be presented. And so the pastor must have a good reputation in the community as well so that the gospel can be advanced. God can use this man or these men to help advance the gospel through the church in the community in which, we are, which we're in. So he had to be a model of godly life in his family, model of godly life to the flock, and a model of godly life in the world. 
So that's the requirements of the pastor of being a model man of faith. The second requirement of a pastor is he's to be mature. He's to be a mature man of faith. If you look at verse 2 again, it says in that verse, verse that he is to be able to teach. Now, this is the greatest difference in the requirements between the pastor and the deacons. You don't find that the deacon needs to be able to teach, but you find it in the pastors here. It's a requirement here of the pastors. And so that t- tells us here that as the pastor, he's to be mature. He's to be a student of the word. He's to wrestle with the text. He's to communicate and defend the text and use the word to feed the flock. And as he comes to the church to feed the flock, then God uses his word to encourage his people, to convict, to change, to empower, to persuade, and to draw people to himself and to instruct people. He's to be mature by being able to teach the word of God faithfully. But also he's to be mature, not only able to teach, but then if you skip down to verse 6 again, it tells us that he is to be not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as a devil. So in other words... He's not to be a beginner when he becomes a pastor, not to be new at this, so that he's not puffed up with pride. He doesn't get this idea that he's some kind of rock star in front of all kinds of people, and people are there to see him. Because, friends, we need to always understand that it's never about us. It's always about Jesus. Amen? So that's the kind of pastor that you're required to have, that the church is required to have according to God's word, modeled as a man of faith, but also mature man of faith. Then we come to the requirements of deacons in verses 8 through 13. It tells us here that the deacons says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. Deacons, the word deacon itself means servant. Diakonos means servant. It means one who ministers, one who cares for others, one who meets the needs of other people. And so we find how, as we look at the deacons, we find them to be examples. That's the first letter E. Examples of servanthood. They are to be the lead servants. The leading servants in the church are the deacons. They're leading examples of what servanthood really looks like. And it tells us what their requirements are in verse 8. As we said, it must be reverent. Meaning that these are to be men who are worthy of respect. In other words, it means that their character, the men's, the deacon's character is worth imitating. Reverent. They're not double-tongued. That means that they're not speaking out of both sides of their mouths. Meaning that they're not going to go over and tell this person this way or agree with this person about this thing and then go over here and tell somebody else something completely different over here. They're not double-tongued. They're not given to much wine. The same principle that applies to the pastor applies to the deacon as well when it comes to not being an excuse for a weaker brother to cause them to stumble. Not giving much wine, also not greedy for money. Deacons sometimes may need to be involved in financial matters, so they need to be free from greed. So there to be examples of servanthood of the godly life. And uh, they skip down to verses 11 to 12, and let's see something further. It says, likewise, their wives uh, must be Reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. And so there, there's some who believe that this passage of Scripture talking about wives is really talking about deaconesses. Now, there are deaconesses in the Scripture, and I believe that there were some women who ministered to women like Phoebe. But here in this context, I really believe that he's talking to deacons' wives specifically because deacons and their wives are indeed part of a servant ministry. 
And so they are to work together in this serving uh, in the, the needs of the church. And it tells that her, the deacon's wife also must be reverent. Again, she must have a character that's worth imitating. She's not a slanderer. The word for slander is where we get that word devil. So she's not to be a devil woman. She's not to be diabolical or slanderous or malicious. She's to be temperate, sensible, have sensible judgment, sober-minded. She's to be faithful in all things, which is to be trustworthy and to be reliable. So he's to be a family man, just like the pastor, a one-woman man, having this one woman as his wife, and leads his family well. That's who the, the deacon is to be, an example. They're examples of servanthood and the godly life. Look at verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. They're to serve well. When deacons step up to the plate and say, I'm going to be a deacon, they're to serve well. They need to have a willingness to work and to serve, not just to fill a spot. To serve and not just be willing to fill a spot or to, to get that name so that, okay, I've got this now for my resume. I am a deacon. No, that's not what this is about. Serving means to serve, amen? It means to serve, to minister to the needs of others. And that serving itself may not be attractive or even desirable, but those who serve well resemble Jesus, Amen? When you are serving well, you look like Jesus. You're resembling him in his selfless, sacrificial service toward other people. Serve well. So the deacon is to be examples. They're to be examples of servanthood of the godly life. And then secondly, the second E is that they are to be established. In verse 9, it tells us, we're backing up a little bit. In verse 9, it says, they're holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. So what does that mean? Well, holding means having, uh, clinging to, knowing this mystery of the faith. The mystery, Paul uses that word a lot, mystery. And mystery here, we think about Alfred Hitchcock and we think about mystery. But that's not really what he's talking about. He's talking about a mystery here is that which was previously hidden, which has now been revealed. And that which has previously be hidden had been hidden but is now revealed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's holding to, the, the deacon is establishing that he holds to, he knows the gospel, he understands the gospel, he understands doctrine, and he does so with a pure conscience. In other words, he knows the gospel, he knows Jesus as a Savior, he knows what it means to be a child of God, and he is living that out consistently in his walk with a pure conscience. That's what that means. He's established. So the requirements of the deacon is he's established understanding the gospel, the doctrines, and living it out. But also it tells us in verse 10, he says, Let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Let them first be tested. Does that mean that uh, you've got a hundred question test that we've got to give you before you can sign the dotted line to be a deacon? No, that's not what it means. It means that you're being watched. In other words, you're already serving as a deacon before you actually have the title of deacon. Amen? You have that servant heart of being a deacon, demonstrating your faith as you serve the Lord blamelessly, free from accusation, being faithful to do this. Paul is very clear, very articulate, very 
succinct about each of these requirements for the pastors and for the deacons. Because as the leaders go, so goes the church. And so that's what he's saying here. And as the church has these kinds of men, men who are models for godly living, mature in the faith, examples of servanthood, and established in the faith, then the church sees that, and they take that upon themselves, and they begin to live that way. Then the church itself begins to be more effective in the community to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the whole point is to point people to Jesus. Amen? That's what it's about, pointing more people to Jesus. And so that brings us then, as we think about these pastors and deacons are to be godly men who are controlled by Christ. We see then next that Paul goes from that into verses 14 through 16 where he tells Timothy and the church that in the previous verses and in the following verses, he shows how the church is to conduct itself as a church, but also as such, we see here the reminder of our purpose and our display. Our purpose and our display. So this is who we are and what we're to look like as we come to these verses. This is who we are and what we're to look like in order that the gospel will be advanced. And we find that in verses 14 through 16. Let me just read it, and then we'll go back and touch it again. These things I write to you, although I hope to come to you shortly, Paul says, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of ground of the truth, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. And so we see there's four L's here. The first one is that the church is to be loving. It's to be loving. And we find that as we see in verse 15, he says that how you to conduct yourself in the house of God. The word really is household of God. In the household of God. And a household gives us the mindset of brothers and sisters. So in other words, we are born again. When we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are born again into a family. We're born again into God's family. In John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, it says, He came to his own, his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So as we are born again, listen church, as we are born again, becoming disciples of Jesus Christ, we find that we are now in a new family. God is our father. As believers, we are his children. And now we as his children are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're in a family. And so the church is to be a place of loving each other as the family of God. Amen? That's who we're to be. It's the part of the purpose of the church is that we're to be loving as the family of God. The church is to be a place of warmth and refuge. It's to be a place of encouragement and growth. It's to be a place of guidance and help. It is to be that place in Romans 12, 15 that says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Since I've come to Mount Pleasant, I've found that you had to be you to be these kinds of people. And I praise God for that. Amen. As a matter of fact, I've had many conversations with people uh, who want to meet the new guy from Mount Pleasant. And some who have come here before and some who uh, have uh, come and come back. 
but many times I'll hear some of these conversations about Mount Pleasant, how you have been gracious to love and to help people in their time of need. Thank you for that. Thank you for being that kind of a church that loves people because you love Jesus. We're to be a loving church. This is who we are. This is what we're to look like to advance the gospel in the world. Who in the world wants to be a part of a building or an organization where they don't care about each other, right? So we as the church are to love each other and to be a church that's loving people as the family of God. And guess what? Our family's not big enough yet, right? We want more brothers and sisters, amen? We want more brothers and sisters to come into the family of God. And so we're to be loving all of those who then come in, loving people of God. And then the second L is to be living. The second part of verse 15 says, conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The word church means ecclesia. It means the assembly, those called out ones of the living God. We're the called out ones, the assembly of the living God. We are the assembly of the living God. In other words, this, the church doesn't belong to any one person. It belongs to God. It doesn't belong to the pastor. The church doesn't belong to the deacons. The church doesn't belong to the Sunday school workers and the teachers. The church doesn't belong to any person, but rather it belongs only to the Lord because he's the one who purchased it with the blood of his son. Amen? It belongs to him. I can't help but to think there's an old Disney movie from way back called Pollyanna. I don't know if y'all ever remember that movie. It's a great movie. Haley Mills is one of her first ones, I think. And uh, in that, she's the, she becomes adopted by her wealthy, uh, I believe it's her aunt or somebody. And uh, she, Miss, Miss Harrington, has a lot of wealth, and she loves to tell the pastor what to preach. And uh, so she, Pollyanna goes one day to, to speak to the pastor. She says something that her father, who had been a missionary, says, had said, and that is this. Nobody owns a church. And that turned a switch in that pastor's heart. I love it's my favorite scenes in the movie. Nobody owns a church. And he became he changed by that. And that's the way it is, friends. Only the living God owns the church. Amen. He's the one who owns it. And since it belongs to him, he alone has the right to tell us how it's to be governed, as we see here in the scripture. Culture is going to tell us that the church needs to be governed a certain way. But, friends, we don't go with the culture. We go with the scripture. Amen? What does the scripture say about how the church is to be governed? And not only that, but what, what are we supposed to do as the church and how we are to live as the church? It's the church of the living God. It's his church. But it's also the church we see here, the church of the living God. Paul was very clear to put that in there because in Ephesus there were a whole lot of gods around there, but none of those gods were living. There's only one living God. Amen? This is the church of the living God, not the dead idols of Ephesus, not the dead idols of today. It's the living God, the church of the living God. Friends, listen, we are a living church, a living organism. We're not an organization. We're a living organism because we're of the church of the living God. Our God is the living God. And as we gather together, assembling together as his people, we worship the living God. We encounter the living God. We hear from the living God. We sing to the living God. We sing about the living God. 
We gather together and he dwells in us and he dwells among us and we come into his presence and we listen to his word and we partake of his table and we are the church of the living God. We are his bride, the bride of Christ, and we've been paid for with the blood of Jesus, established for his glory. And Jesus said, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. It is the church of the living God. And as the church of the living God, he desires for us to gather together. And that's why we find in Hebrews 10.25 that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. As the manner of some is, but to exhort one another and so much more that as you see the day approaching. We're to be together, to hear from the Lord, to worship him together. Reminder here of the purpose, our purpose and display is that we're to be loving, we're to be the living church, but also a lifting church. It tells us here that the, in verse 15, how we're to conduct ourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. In other words, we're to be lifting high the truth, the pillar and the ground of the truth. A pillar is that which lifts up, right? And the ground is the bulwark, the buttress. It's the foundation. And so the church is built on the truth of Jesus Christ. And we as a church are to lift up as the pillar. We're to lift him up. We're to be putting Jesus Christ on display for all the world to see him. So how does that happen? How do we put him on display? It's through the lives of its members. That's how we put him on display. By being a model for the world to see what Jesus is in us. And so that brings us to the fourth L, and that is that we're to be lighting. We're to be lighting. In verse 16, he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of confidence, of godliness. He says, without controversy means we're confessing this. Uh, great, how awesome, how magnificent is this mystery. Again, that which is previously hidden but recently revealed of the gospel of godliness, of godly living. This godly living comes, that this godly living that he talked about that needs to be in the pastor, the godly living that needs to be in the, uh, the deacon, the, 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 the models of the rest of the church, this godliness comes only through the gospel. You see, what Jesus has done for us as his people has changed us. And so we are lighting the way to Jesus with the gospel. We're meeting people where they are and pointing them to Jesus. It's how we are changed. It's what has made the difference in our lives to be the pastors, the deacons, and all disciples. And he goes further and he explains what that gospel, that mystery of godliness, that the gospel and what that's done in these next few verses. It, it seems that that may have been an old hymn that Paul pulled out and plugged in here, that God was manifested in the flesh. Meaning that, God, that Jesus came, he became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. God was manifested in the flesh. It's his incarnation. Christ who is fully God and fully man. He was justified by the Spirit, meaning vindicated by the Spirit or proven by the Spirit. How, did, how was Jesus proven by the Spirit? Well, it's through his miracles and through the resurrection and also how he is dwelling in believers today. He's seen by angels. The angels were with Jesus in glory before he came to earth. The angels were with Jesus at his birth. The angels were with Jesus at the temptation in the wilderness. They were with Jesus in Gethsemane to strengthen him. They were with Jesus at the empty tomb. They were with Jesus at the ascension. And they're with Jesus even now around the throne worshiping him. He's seen by angels. 
And he's preached among the Gentiles, which is the nations, carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's believed on in the world. It means he draws people to himself all over the world, and he's received up in glory. That's speaking of the ascension. But also we find that the ascension, it tells us that Jesus will return in the same manner in which he did then, coming back in the clouds. It's the gospel. This is who Jesus is, and because of the gospel, we have been changed. This is Jesus. This is the gospel, and that was to have changed us to be like him. We are now his people. We once were dead, but now we're, law, uh, now we're alive. We once were hopeless, but now we have all hope. And as his people, as the church, we're to be loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to be worshiping the living God as, because he's the one who gives us direction and dwells in us. We're to be lifting high the truth of Jesus, putting him on display through our lives, living that out as lights in the world of darkness because of the change that the gospel has made in each of us. And we're to be fulfilling his purpose and be on display for the world to see Jesus in us individually, but also as the body, the church, the bride of Christ. That's how we're supposed to be living our lives. Being that light, being alive, loving each other, lifting high Jesus. And so what are we to do? Two things to do real quick as the church. One, encourage your leaders. Encourage your leaders by praying for your leaders. Pray for your pastors and pray for your deacons. And while you're praying for them, hey, thank God for them too, amen? Thank God for your pastors and your deacons, your leaders. And then also encourage them by thanking your pastors and thanking your deacons for their service to the Lord. And then secondly, exhibit the life of godliness. This is who we're supposed to be, right? We're to exhibit that life of godliness so that the gospel can be advanced to the rest of the world, in our community and out and about. Exhibit the life of godliness, displaying Jesus in your life. Every day, and all that you say and all that you do, and always begins with that first step. You see, you can't live a godly life. You can live a good life, but you can't live a godly life without knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. And a godly life is what we desire because we make ourselves, we're made, we're made right with God through Jesus Christ. It comes with knowing that we're sinners in need of a Savior turning from our sin and turning to Jesus, which is repentance, embracing, believing with all of our heart that Jesus is God's Son who died on the cross and rose again bodily from the grave and professing Him as the Lord and Savior of our lives. It's a step of faith of just repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. So if you've never taken that step today, we invite you today as we get ready to come to our invitation just a minute to say yes to Jesus. But if you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, maybe you just need to recommit your heart Recommit your life to the Lord, to be that man of God, that woman of God that God's called you to be, to live out that life of godliness. Maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's a deacon. He says, I want to just be everything God's called me to be. Maybe it's a teacher, a worker. Wherever you are, friend, follow through and be obedient to what God's called you to do and be faithful so that we will be the church, the bride of Christ that he desires for us to be. Let's pray. Father, We thank you, we praise you, we honor you. We pray that you would have your way in our hearts and lives, that we'll be the people of God that you've called us and set us apart to be. Lord, you've set forth your requirements, your standards for our leaders. Help our leaders to be what you've called us to be. Father, I pray that you would be men of God who are models of the faith, 
mature in our faith, examples of servanthood established in their faith. And that, Lord, it would pass on to every member of our congregation to be men and women of God. But also, Father, to see exactly what we're supposed to be as your people. To live out the purpose that you've called us to be and to be on display, to show the world around us that it's not about us, but it's all about Jesus. And so, Lord, let us exhibit Jesus in our daily life. Whether we're in church, whether we're in the stores, whether we're in our Sunday schools, or whether we're in public school, wherever we are, Father, may we give honor and glory to Jesus Christ and be on display for the world to see, and may we not be ashamed of the godliness that you've given to us through your Son and our Savior. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. Uh, you come. Pastor Andy's here. I'll be here if you need to come and pray with us. We'll be glad to pray. Or come and pray silently as we stand and sing together.